Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the end of December. You've had it up to here with light, fluffy, year-in-review segments across the various sports media landscape. You've done your sporting crossword of the year twice over at this stage. What you want today, I'm convinced of it, what you want today is a deep dive into a serious, meaty topic like... Yes. Oh, I don't know, the representation of Irish nationalism through sport amid the rise of a new type of republicanism in Irish society? Yes. Yes, Something like that? Is that what you're thinking? Yes. Owen, I'm telling you... You know your audience better than perhaps <laughs> any journalist I know. Mm. Uh, you've 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 read the room. I've read the this room. This is what the people want. It's a good festive cheer today. Yeah, <laughs> I, I should say straight away. Brian Kerr is involved yeah. in this show Hold in front on of a, a live audience. Hold yeah. on a second. Yeah. Oh, Brian Kerr is involved in this. Yeah, so there in are front some of laughs. a live audience. So yeah, come on, yeah, yeah. come on. If if that's what you're in the mood for, there are some laughs to be had too. But it's a really good, really interesting conversation. We recorded this one at Liberty Hall. It was the same. It worked out to be the same day. We had it planned anyway, obviously. But uh, as we were prepping for it, the news came in on that day that UEFA had fined the FAI twenty thousand euro for the UA up the rat chance in the dressing room after the Women's World Cup playoff at Hampden Park. UEFA said the fine was handed down for the violation of the basic rules of decent conduct the FAI accepted the punishment while reiterating their apology for the chance we heard Amber Barrett speak very well on this podcast uh, on all this in an episode of the podcast earlier this month but the idea of this chat you're about to hear was to use that one incident and its heated aftermath as a jumping off point to have a much broader conversation. Una Maladi wrote a piece in the Irish Times around that time that got a lot of reaction. She was placing the events at Hamden into a wider context of the rise of a new sort of republicanism among younger people. And Brian Kerr had a lot to say based on his experiences as Republic of Ireland manager and his own family background. Brian's parents were originally from Belfast before moving to Dublin. The gang's all here. End of year shows come to you with thanks to O'Hara's Irish Craft Beers. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen, it's brilliant to have you both here. By the way, not only is Brian one of our most popular guests at these Liberty Hall shows with his brilliant football insights, he also has the ability to deliver some left-field sound bites that we get to use for the next 12 months, <laughs> like this one from the Gangs All Here show earlier this year. And then we did to get the ass that fell over the bit of tube, and anyway, we did to get a little bit of tube. And I, I looks around, and there's Jerry Duff. We just don't get that from anyone else, do we? No. no. Any more trips to the motor factors in the meantime, Brent? <laughs> no. I'm afraid to go in. <laughs> Afraid to go in in case I meet Duffer and he has the hump over the cup final. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, are you, are you enjoying the World Cup so far? Any, any standout for you? Um, well, I, I enjoyed Ken earlier. He, we were discussing it backstage. He looked like he wasn't very happy there. But he, also, the accommodation didn't look right where he was either. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but I'm enjoying it. Ah. Yeah, I, I kind of, when it was 10 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 7 o'clock, they were long days. It was hard to get away with that at home. <laughs> and if Brian Kerr is saying there's too much football on, you oh, know I, there's too I much I didn't say that. <laughs> but, could you put out the bins? Yeah, well, maybe about half 10 tonight, yeah. <laughs> 11 o'clock. I, 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 and then I noticed my car tax wasn't paid. I hadn't paid the fines for speeding. I hadn't paid the local property tax. That's the sore one with you, was it? I hadn't paid Spotify. That's another one for you. I hadn't paid fuck all until we got to the three o'clock and seven o'clock matches. I was back in business. <laughs> half, half my life came back at that stage. Una, tell us, you're, you're a Man United fan, I believe, or have been, yeah, yeah. So you must really feel for Cristiano Ronaldo having to, you know, be dropped and watch a 21-year-old score a hat-trick in his place. He's in an existential issue as a player and that he wants to stop time. You know, and, and that just that just can't happen. Yeah. Um, I'm actually not watching the World Cup. Any, as in, like, official boycott? Yeah, really? which is really, um, you know, I hate not being able to watch it. Obviously, I'm doing it to myself. Um, and the reason for that is you know, I was in uh, Nepal in 2014 doing this really grim... Um, story on these women who'd been rescued from slavery. The evening will get lighter, by the way. <laughs> and uh, Not that Two much. live shows being covered tomorrow, by the way, both games, uh, St. Gavin's and Liberty Hall. So. <laughs> but we were in this village in uh, very rural, rural Nepal, near the border of India, near this town called Dengadi. And I was in this village... And I was talking to these various women who were trying to track down this particular woman. And I kind of was like looking around and going, where are all the young men? And uh, this fixer that I had with me, I asked him that question and he asked someone and he said, oh, they're all in Qatar. And I was like, what? And then it clicked with me. So this was late 2014. And then kind of since then, tracking what's been happening, I just felt, you know, I just can't, um, I, I, I just can't, I, you know, it doesn't matter if an individual doesn't watch it. But for myself, after talking to all these people, I was like, you know, this is going to happen anyway, but fuck that. You're you know? not getting jealous now. Um, I, like, I've gone, I'm very... <laughs> I'm very... Because I, I started out like that. Yeah. Because I was, I was around a few of the places nearby, and I did feel, you know, it, isn't, it, it wasn't, well, I felt strongly that it wasn't the right place for it. But then once the matches started, people... Saying you're watching a bit, and I said, ah, just the odd bit, 10 o'clock, 1 o'clock, <laughs> 4 o'clock, 7 o'clock. But 
there is a bit of me watching it going, it's uh, like there's a falseness about yeah, the yeah. crowd reaction to stuff. And see, I, I I'm very obstinate. Enough. So yeah. once I say I'm not going to do something or I am going to do something, you know, I will do that to myself and suffer the, <laughs> yeah. the, the consequences, the hand wringing consequences of it. Yeah. Yeah. Funny you say about the crowd, the, the fakeness of it. There's something about like the, the Viking thunderclap followed by the Mexican wave, followed by this cheers for Ronaldo. On, uh, in the last 16 game that I just thought none of this is, like this is not a football and that atmosphere. was a match it was 3-2 they scored they didn't notice the goals were going there yeah, they were too yeah, busy yeah. doing all the mad yeah. stuff mad mad you really hate that Viking thunderclap Murphy you never, never stop banging on about that <laughs> bring back Iceland <laughs> Brian um, obviously the women's team are at the centre of this storm a couple of months ago and there's a bit of a line drawn under it now from the news today in your experience has there been a history of this kind of singing of rebel songs and so on in the men's national team well, I, I, I wasn't too close to it until um, I, until we went to play the match in Iran, the playoff game for 2002 World Cup, and I, got, I went to the match on the team bus that day because uh, the whole security issue around the team in Tehran, it, it was kind of tight, like it wasn't that... Uh, you were going to get the 74 down to out, out of the pitch or the 77 or the 7A for that matter. Was also, but you know, and, and you were working with the FAI at that time. Yeah. I was, I was, I had some fancy title. I think I was <laughs> technical tec- director. Tec- I, was te- I was technical yeah. director and new team manager. Jesus. Anyway, I. Uh, <laughs> but I probably wasn't the most popular fella around the senior international team because we were winning an awful lot of matches at the time. And I think there was a suspicion that I had ambitions about being the senior team manager, which I didn't have. In my head, I was more than delighted to be doing the gig I was doing. But there was some of the staff around the team probably felt I had that. And they they might have made Mick a little bit edgy Mm. towards my presence. Anyway, I went to the match. I, I, I... apologised for all my sins, I said confession, I did confession, absolution, the whole thing, and got on the bus, going out, and Jesus, the music, I mean, the taxi man tonight did me head in with Chris the Borg for a half an hour, 45 <laughs> minutes, 50 minutes, and I'm late, and, but, but the bus going to the match, and the stuff, but it was, it was kind of bland enough, but I just went, fucking hell, how bad is this Wolf Town stuff, and, well, I'm, and, and they probably thought it was grand, you know, but I just didn't like, I didn't like the tone of it. And uh, why was I feeling that way? Well, I just thought it was crap music for a start. <laughs> I didn't think it was very inspiring. I didn't think there was anything about it that, you know, bar you could sing along to it an, an odd verse. If you if you are used to hearing those songs, the, the lads on the bus, must, the players must have been getting something out of it, though. That's why they were doing it. Well, right? tell me, the Matt Ma Holland now loved it, or or, or Clinton. Well, actually, know, funny enough, though, I would have thought maybe or, maybe the English, some of the English-born players might actually be, you know, to prove yeah, themselves. Yeah, well, well, maybe, but maybe you're right. I thought about it. I thought about it a bit more. I thought about it after I read your uh, brilliant piece after the girls thing happened about. The, the girls coming from a different era and not really getting the relevance that some people might have about it uh, or some people's strong feelings about it. But my feeling at the time was, we didn't, don't need this. I mean, look, I wasn't beyond giving it a, a bit of mad stuff in the dressing room about... I remember we played England one night here in the youth match. And we were after doing kind of well. We won a couple of European championships that year. And the next match, we're, we're at home to England in a friendly under 19. And tickets now were nearly as scarce as they were for this gig. There was 10,000 tickets bought for talk. We're playing England, Steve, Steve and Jared and the whole lot playing that. And I've given it the full whack before the match about, about Cromwell and about... <laughs> And the poor old nuns in the monasteries, and uh, and and look at the heads on you, the big red head on you. But your dad had to go to England 40 years ago, and all that stuff. And which is uh, there? I was pre- I presumed we were sending home a few a few bob for the for for parcels, all that sort of. I give her all that in the dressing room, and obviously it worked very well. We were down three, not and a half time. <laughs> 
Keith Andrews will tell you about it sometime. He was playing. Yeah. And at half time, I, I says, Jesus, I better have another go. So I had another go and pulled out a few more remarks that I thought, we were beating five, nothing. I said, I think I need to change something here. If we play England again, don't go that road. Mm. But, I, but not, not on, you know, the singing song thing, I, I just getting on the bus going, but I take it what you're saying about the players. And the players from different backgrounds may have been inspired by that. They were, I mean, one player I got into his car in England, I was over watching matches, and he gave me a lift to the airport, and he stuck in the tape. I won't tell you who he was, but he sent a forward and he scored a few goals. I'll leave it at that. Uh, and, and I went, fucking hell, does he really listen to this stuff in the daytime when he's driving around? But for them away from home, I didn't understand that. If you're away from home and you're missing out on something and you're missing out, and, and funny, I was away um, a few weeks ago, I was away, and I met, I met a fella who played for me. He actually scored a goal in one of those European finals. Alan Quinn got a few caps, Alan. And he, he, was, he was telling me about his time at Sheffield Wednesday and Sheffield United, and he threw in a little remark that I he said, and he said, you know the way it was, Brian, you just always called you Paddy, give us a Paddy, give us a... And I didn't realise that. He was still Paddy when he was playing in England with the players in the 90s. Mm. So, maybe I was wrong, so, but, but, but I stopped it. You stopped it when you came well, in Because that was, that was Mick, and then when I, I had the team, uh, sorry, when I started... I said that won't come. That tape won't be on the. It'd be. It'd be different. It'd be, oh, you know, whatever it was. It was might have been a bit of fill over, but it would certainly. It'd have been Irish. It'd have been relevant, and it would have. But it wouldn't have been anything that I thought was shite music for a start. Mm. Or anything that I thought was a bit about, um, you know, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the violence of, mm. of the campaigns or whatever, yeah. whatever way you want it, republicanism. I just didn't think I, I didn't think it was right. Yeah. So did did you get like pushback from the players then? No, no. They I didn't have I, I probably was even grumpier than I am now. And I, when <laughs> they when they, I I don't remember. I I think they would have been happy enough with like. There was, a, there was great diversity in the players, if you think about it. Stephen Reid, Clinton, their background, Kevin Caban, Gary Brain, their background, you know, Robbie, Damien, a Dublin background, Shea Given from, uh, from, from Donegal, Stephen Carr, there was, a, Kenny Cullen, there was a lot of diversity in that. So I, I, I don't think the music should have been one-size-fits-all one anyway, but I... Look, I don't know. In the dressing room, it was never in the dressing room. They played their own stuff, and some of that was shy too. But it wasn't that. <laughs> but it was whatever they wanted. So, what did you? Was there a big meeting about this, or was it just a standard thing? Yeah, it was a big meeting, me and me. <laughs> yeah. And I decided. And Simple I, as that. I decided that I just no, there was no big meeting. But no, there's no argument that we need this for team spirit and need this to get ourselves going and all that kind of stuff. Well. I, I was trying to maybe change things uh, from wherever the inspiration stuff was before. I mean, I know some of the biggest criticism I got was about that it was, there was too much analysis, mm. right? <laughs> and uh, that there was too much, uh, too much um, video analysis, which there wasn't, but there was a, a lot more than there had been previously. And I would... Um, uh, I, was, uh, I was trying to change some of the culture around the team at the time. Even the music in the stadium before the matches, there used to be an awful lot of crap on, 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 the, on the Lansdowne Road. Mm. You know, yeah. And I, I, I actually... Got involved with that. I got involved with that and put level, the songs yeah. that I wanted to hear that I thought <laughs> the crowd might like to hear yeah, in advance yeah. of the matches and that... The players in the warm up might go, Jesus, that's all right, that's a bit different. That's yeah, yeah. who the fuck are they? Yeah, yeah. So, what I did then was I brought them out to play for the players out at the hotel because I didn't know who Aslan was, yeah, didn't yeah. know who Paul Brady was. So, I said, Right, I'll, bring, I'll get them to come out to the hotel and play for them yeah. and educate the players a little bit about it, about who was, who had a, a different vibe. Yeah. Yeah, Una, can I ask you, uh, you wrote a, a piece that got a lot of reaction at the time about, about all this and about what, what it says, and uh, I guess you were putting it into the context of uh, resurgence, I guess, in Republican feeling and, and a different way that that manifests itself among young people. Can you kind of outline, if, if there's one point that you were trying to convey in that, what would you say that you feel about what happened then and the reaction to what happened? I think what happened then was, 
you know, rebel songs, if however you want to categorize them, are not a new thing in sport, and they're not a new thing in Irish culture. The context is different, though, um, and I think that's what that's what we're seeing is um, a generation that has no lived memory of the troubles, for whom peace was built, um, for whom it was a lot of hard work and a lot of um, compromising was made for people to not experience uh, the trauma of the troubles and for them to live in peace, are existing in a context where, you know, we are in a massive, massive, uh, profound cultural and social change in this country. Um, and have been for some time. And part of that is a search for an identity that leapfrogs both Catholicism and um, colonialism, I suppose, uh, but also responds to those things. And so I had been thinking for, for so long, I started out as a music journalist and so much of my life is spent, you know, talking to artists and uh, participating in those scenes and that kind of stuff. So it's been quite clear to me since the recession, that the culture that is emerging both artistically uh, and the social culture is very, very, very different. And inevitably, when that culture is there, these things crop up uh, that act as catalysts for situations. And it's never things we expect. You know, inevitably, we were going to have to have this conversation um, and society was going to have to start teasing out these things of ascendant nationalism, of ascendant Irish republicanism in our society. Nobody could have expected that it would have been the women's team in a dressing room singing a song, you know, and having the wolf tones next to Taylor Swift on a Spotify playlist that would have instigated that. But it is on the playlist. And that that, uh, chant um, does mean something different. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just trying to analyze the context within which this is occurring, you know. Um, because it, it's, there's, there's two things that I think are really major. The reaction to the piece that I got, which was this piece that I wrote in the Irish Times about what does it mean to say up the Ra. I was surprised that an awful lot of pe- people were actually saying, okay, there's, there's a point here. Um, and a lot of older generation journalists were like no like that you're, you, you that is not it this is what it means that's all that it means um and and I understand that so I'm wondering for how long do younger Irish people have to carry a trauma of something that they didn't exist within I don't think it's fair to say that younger Irish people don't know their history um and what are we going to do about this feeling of intense patriotism? What are we going to do about this feeling of searching for an identity of somewhere to hang our hat on that isn't uh, coloured by oppression? And what are we going to do politically about this feeling? Um, Because we know that nationalism can go wrong. But there's also nationalisms, and this is an Irish nationalism, and it's very specific to our context, and I think we need to tease that out. What makes you think, though, that young people do know their history? Because surely if you know the history and you know what the IRA represented through the height of the Troubles and what they did and the atrocities they committed, and you're still singing in support of them, what, what does that say about how, how these young people feel? I think it's more that singing a Wolf Tones song isn't directly linked to sectarianism. I genuinely think that it is like a Gowan Ireland reflex. I don't think that that's how it's received by people who heard that previously in their lives, considering that experience uh, that they may have had, yeah. 70s, 80s, 90s. But I, I don't think that a lot of people who are, are singing that song in that uh, dressing room are doing it from a sectarian place. The thing is with our identity and our nationalism and our pride and all that kind of stuff is that a lot of the songs that we have to sing do are coloured by that. Um, and how, 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 like, I think that there's a lot of irritation amongst younger people Um, in terms of how they're trying to hone and form and discover contemporary Irish identity, being told, you're not allowed to sing that song, you're not allowed to sing this song. Um, I think there's been a failure of older generations to develop 
this is going to sound real self-help or something, but to develop a framework within which they can actually process the trauma of the Troubles. That has a lot to do with the political context at the time. It has a lot to do with the social context of the time. It has a lot to do with people not necessarily having the tools to figure that out. It has to do with the failure of the state with not going into extensive truth and reconciliation uh, processes. And it's also a failure of the state to memorialize so if you, like, if you want to learn about the trauma of the Troubles, if you want to lo- learn about the trauma of uh, Irish theocracy and you're a school teacher, where do you bring your kids on a school tour? Mm. I mean, you can bring them to the Civil Rights Museum in yeah. Derry. Yeah. But, you know, if you go to America, uh, you can go to the, the Museum of African American Culture in D.C. You can go to the Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. You can go to the uh, Museum in Montgomery. You can go, or the Memorial in Montgomery. You can go to the Museum in Birmingham. Like, how can we keep saying to people, you don't know your history, you don't know what you're talking about, and there's this absence that the, sta- the state has left a vacuum within which we can actually engage with that. So, and, and also these new develop, uh, identities that are being developed, this intense pride, which is all across culture, uh, is coming from a place of Irishness. And, and that doesn't mean, you know, some kind of ethno-nationalist weirdo crap. It means across um, immigrant communities, it means new Irish, it means black Irish, it means all of those things. People are trying to forge a new identity. And within that, because of the contours we've traced around colonialism, and because of we are, you know, a, a country that was colonised, inevitably loads of that stuff is going to erupt and it's going to feel very messy. Yeah. Um, like, I understand that the, the state obviously has a role in memorialising this stuff, but I think it's also incumbent on older generations, and you saw that in their response to your piece, to actually say, well, we remember it. And that was... A lot of the reaction was that, that they, that they said, well, OK... As the younger people work through this, we don't, have to, we don't have to work through our understanding of it. We lived it, and therefore this chant really makes us angry. Can you see their point? That, that 100% yeah. see that point. 100%. But considering what happened in 98, considering what happened with the peace process and with the Good Friday Agreement, considering that the entire purpose of this amazing, incredible project that the peace process was was for people to not actually experience trauma and to not relive violence, asking a new generation to sit in the pain of the past that the frameworks were not developed around that is a very complex thing to do for a country scarred by intergenerational trauma across loads of things. One of the things that I think people raise is like, well, you know, why are young people so irate about um, the, the, the trauma that the Catholic Church uh, did in so many kind of diverse ways? and not the troubles. And that's a really interesting thing. Like, why do younger generations still are absolutely raging about marginal laundries and mother and baby homes? And obviously, repeal fed into that as well. And, and again, I think it's like, I genuinely think that a lot of younger Irish people understand the context within which violence in the North existed. And it's not a defense, but there was a reason for the troubles. That's not a defense. Like, I am an anti-violence person. Like, but, and when you look at theocracy and, and, the, and the oppression there, it's like, why did they do that? What was the reason? It seems like it lacks a context where I think younger people see that there is a, is a context. It's also, impo- it's also impossible for people to know every single piece of history, and, and, and it's impossible to feel something you didn't go through. Um, but I think we're, we're on a wave now of this weird, you know, Celtic revival vibe that's going on in loads of different ways. It's informing how people feel in society. It's also about a confidence in identity that has obviously been lacking in older generations because you cannot develop, like, self-leadership in a culture of oppression. You cannot have confidence. There does seem to be an end of shame as a lever that forces can pull in Irish society and there does seem to be this this thing that Irish people were always taught and everyone learned in school you know don't get in trouble don't be bad don't be bold I feel like when you say that to kids in Ireland at the moment they'll just stand there blinking at you you know there's a there's a confidence and lack of fear that's like actually I'm going to I'm 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 not like hindered by that I'm not dragged down by that so Brian what do you think um, just in terms of younger 
people in younger generations, sh- should they be given more leeway maybe than, than some people give them? In relation to? Well, in relation to what Una talks about there, that maybe they, you know, th- these things, while they're, while they're not acceptable, <laughs> there's a context for them. Well, I think one of the reasons why... Um, one of the reasons why uh, people, as you said, if you, you want to go and w- find out what happened and why did it happen and how do you get a balanced view of it is because there's a, a stalemate around the place. There's a stalemate in the north and there's a kind of a stalemate here because there's a battle going on between the emergence of Sinn Féin and the other political parties about who says what and what you put out there has been the truth and... Um, what? Why? Why I would still feel fairly strongly against any references like saying "up the raft," for instance. Why it, it still stings with me? And you're right; it's probably a generational thing because I was around at the time when some of my relations were forced into come down and stay in the house and living living in my ma's house and so on because it was so bad, um, and. You know, the escape from that, for me, not the escape from being in the troubles, but the escape in my head in terms of you doing anything about it, went back to sport and trying to educate the players that I had, that the society we were living was in was all right, but it was a society 100 miles up the road that was crazy. And I brought the teams up regularly to the north. I brought Pats up regularly to the north in the worst of the troubles uh, and played matches deliberately against Portadown and Linfield, and I can remember players on the, buses, on the bus looking at it and going, what's he doing? We're bringing it along the streets that were, you know, let's say highly charged in the, in the murals and so on. And I, I was trying to get across to them that we that had to keep a bit of normalisation, but we also had to have this interaction with people that breaks down the barriers. It just took too long for that sort of interaction to happen, to change after the, 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 the 98 agreement, whatever. But it, it took too long for the movement of people. It's the movement of people that changes things. I was in Pakistan earlier this year, uh, as you do. Look, <laughs> Well, you started it. Uh, Nepal. Uh, Sorry, I'm all over the place. Anyway, we're in Pakistan, as you do, looking for a few players for Pats, right? (laughs) uh, After a few days there, I ended up going, I like we we went through about. To be, we were fairly close contact about 300 players over a few days and they had come from all over Pakistan to come down to, to be involved in these trial matches but what I noticed over the few days was that they were all sorts of shapes and colours and um, cultures I'd nearly say there was blokes from where we were, where, where we were in Karachi and they were you know they were, the place was called Vieira, I think it was called. And everyone used to say, have you gone there yet looking for players? Because it was, a, it, was a, it was a hotbed of soccer. Now, all we saw was cricket everywhere. There was 175 channels on the telly, and 174 of them had cricket on. And we're, we're over trying to find a few soccer players. Now, going away from the point, but my point was, really, the, it was all about the movement of people. Where had these people come from? They hadn't come from Pakistan. They weren't always in Pakistan. There was a movement of people. We're having that movement going in here now. The movement has been going on. And uh, 25 years ago, I told the developments officers in the FAI, I said, look at Things are changing, and there's people coming in here, and we need to nurture them. I want to bring it back to sport a little bit, and apologies for that. But I said, we need to nurture this, and we need to make it easy for them to come in. Not to come into Ireland, just not your job, but to come in to play football. It's not going to be easy. But this will be the change for us when we have strong, powerful, fast players and that, that, that's, you see that development now. I, I, I thought, and that's, that's the chance for our society changing that, changing attitudes, not just depending on the brilliance of Paul McGrath and attitudes to him or Curtis Fleming or Philip Linnet, that the, the change is coming. The change is coming, and you're right about us finding a new identity. It's very complex to find that identity. Would that identity be celebrating the violence of what was done 
in, in, in support of the Catholic people of Northern Ireland. Not really, not my name anyway, not lots and lots and lots of people's name. Why it was done I, and the justification for it, I hear it. But we've been too slow to react and to, to find the ways, as you said, of compromise. I mean, this stuff at the moment, the United Ireland and people going, well, you're going to be United Ireland in a few years. You're joking me. We can't get a United League. You can't play an All Ireland. We can't get an All Ireland League. And we have it, we have it in rugby, yeah, but they're different, different, different people. They've been out for a good while. Yeah. But, but we, like, you know, Kieran Lucid, you, you, you talk to him, you're a great lad. We're trying to do the All Ireland League. We're going around the clubs in the north and we're getting, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm still going, Jesus, it'll be still a tough gig to sell yeah. when the matches start. Yeah. But, so we've loads and loads and loads to do. But, you know, you're right about the generational thing. I might be on behind the eight ball and that. I'm still giving out to the kids and saying, you better be a good boy. And you better, <laughs> or you better be better. And, and, and they are looking at me like that. I, I want to bring Una back in on this, but just uh, you made a reference there to people coming down and staying with you. I don't know if everyone knows your family background, but your, your parents came down from Belfast I think just yeah. before the, 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 well, the Troubles as we know them in the late 60s. Oh, well, there was always Troubles. Yeah. There was always Troubles in the North. We just didn't hear so much about them until the 60s. And I mean, one of the, you know, I don't know. I think I know why my dad, and just go back to the church, my dad was a boxer, right? And um, he, uh, he worked in, um, he had a job as well. He worked in a place called the Athletic Stores. And I'll, another night, I'll tell you, I'll give you an hour on that story about <laughs> making balls for making the football for a match. A fellow called Joe Bambrick scored six goals in an international match one night. I saw, I was reading it in a book of results, and I said it to me, Dad. I said, Dad, imagine a fellow scored six goals. And he said, I made the ball for the match. Yeah. I thought he was making it up. But a few years ago, Michael Walker rang me. The, the journalist, and he said, by the way, do you know where the ball is? I said, what do you mean the ball? He said, the ball, you're damn made for the match. He did, but it, it's in the museum in Manchester. Yeah. But they came, he came to get more fights. There was a priest invited him down, Father McLaughlin. He could get more fights in Dublin. Maybe that was, it's hard to believe, but there was, he got more fights in Dublin. <laughs> and me, me, me ma followed soon after, but he never wanted to go back. He went back twice for the Ulster Championships and once for his father's funeral. Mm. And, he never, and he never said we should all go back and stay there. I think he understood. I think he was pissed off by the, by the society about the, 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 the battles in the society. He was from an army background. You know, that rumour that I followed Rangers, it wasn't true. <laughs> but I used to look at the results. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> but they were, they were, they were, they were, his, his father was a, was a high-ranking officer in the British Army and he was all around the world as a kid. But I think he saw too much violence, he saw too much army stuff, he saw too much trampling on people's heads all around the world, too many servants, that the rich people had the servants. And even in their setup, they had, we have photographs of the officers, whatever it was, the quarters that his, my granddad would have lived in and their servants you know with turbans on their loaf and all that and I go so I think that he made his mind up it wasn't a society for him yeah uh, what would you say to like a young person in East Belfast who looks out and says the, cult, the, the societal changes that have happened here in the last 10 years are something they can absolutely get on board with that they're not looking at it as a binary Catholics think one way, Protestants think another, but they do come from that Protestant background, and they see that, yes, marriage equality comes in, repeal, everything, but the message then that Up the Rath sends to that person, that, that young Protestant or person who, who was born into the Protestant tradition in East Belfast, what do you think it says to that person? I mean, I wouldn't say anything to them, you know. Like, I don't think, like, I'm from... Well, I, you know, from, I think it does, though. You know, no, I, I wouldn't say sorry. anything. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, I yeah. think it says, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Dublin. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've grown up in the, the apathetic south. Uh, my parents aren't from the north. My mum is from Galway. My dad is from Cavan. They, like, the one thing that I remember growing up is my parents hated the IRA. They hated the conflict, they hated all of the damage that was being done. Um, I think in terms of how it must feel for 
somebody who maybe has an, uh, an inkling uh, who's from a, a Protestant background or a unionist background or even a loyalist background or whatever in the North who sees this stuff, I mean, it must be extraordinarily um, offensive and, and, and right. I mean, it's offensive to a lot of uh, pe- people who aren't from those backgrounds, people who, 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 are, who are in the South as well. So, like... You know, it's such a massive topic in terms of Irish unity um, and the and the prospect for creating a new state. I think the questions about it are, are being asked about it are quite small. I think we need to be very expansive. But to go back to that thing around nationalism and and, and like I, I, in terms of you know the, the women sing the song or whatever. Like I don't think for a second anyone thinks that they meant a sectarianism of it. That is what it means though you know so it's kind of like i use this analogy in the the piece that i wrote it's like if you're going to say you know i sang up the raw but i didn't actually mean to endorse the ira it's kind of that thin defense of like well i call that person gay but like i'm not really trying to be homophobic it's like well you do kind of have to own the things that you're saying but i understood that at the time when i saw it and i, I had to talk about it on the television the next night and i, I was trying to be uh, Tommy Martin asked me, I, I, I was trying to be fair and trying to be reasonable about it, and all there was a little bit of me as well going, Jesus, how did it, what a fucking mistake that was, you know. But I also went, but hold on here, they were in the dressing room, and there's a bear, fair bit of madness going on in the dressing room when you've achieved something that was a bit of a dream, and there's other songs and so on. And I said, they probably got carried along in it when it started without meaning anything very uh with that the words that i would associate it with being offensive i didn't even know it was part of a, a different song at the time yeah, but that the was also, the i didn't understand that but the other thing is is that it never the conversation would have never shifted if the sky news interview hadn't happened mm-hmm. because i think a lot of people looked at it and went like and then when the sky news interview happened a lot of people just went you can't fucking tell us what to, you know it, it emboldened like, people and it, you know i got some people saying well there's nothing fucking wrong with the song but know? like yeah, that yeah. that that feeling yeah but that feeling is something that we need to interrogate and like that feeling like there is anti-englishness and anti-britishness in irish society we need to talk about that like people have xenophobic reflexes towards england we need to talk about that a lot of people think that the ira was right in a blithe, generalized, ignorant way. They think what they did was justified. People think that. Like, we need to talk about that. Like, seven-year-olds think that, and 19-year-olds think that. Like, these are really... Com- do they? Like, I think that... The, no, no, do they? I think that, I think that people do. Like, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and be pure about it or, se- or, or, do, or, or, or do... Like, I think we need to be real about the complexities of the feelings that people have in Irish society, even if they are ugly, even if they are unpleasant, and even if they are offensive. Because we're not going to get anywhere unless we're actually honest about how we're feeling about things. I'm not endorsing any of those things. And I think that the, I get an, a lot of like abuse or whatever from people who think that my analysis is an endorsement. It's not an endorsement. I'm just interested in the context of Irish society, how it is changing and what this refraction is. Because I think when you're trying to carve out a new identity in this period of social revolution, which we're in, you are going to start pulling at the strands of the things that already exist. That's inevitable. And some of those things will be remixed and reimagined. And some of those things will be like, why are you going back to that? Mm. You know, it's like I was watching um, The Rocky Road to Dublin the other week, you know, the Peter Lennon documentary. Yeah, yeah. Which is so amazing. It's on Mubi at the moment. And there's this line in it that just says, you know, what do you do when you get your revolution? You know, what do you do with it? We're having a social revolution right now. What are we going to do with this? Where are our new songs? Where is our new identity? Where is our pride that is actually expansive? And, and, ca- and, can, there be, and can there be one without mentioning the feckin' IRA anymore? Yeah, and, but also, like, you know, I, Irish, nas- Irish nationalism, like, there's this, there's a generalisation of nationalisms that said, like, you know, nationalism is regressive, it can be fascistic, it can be oppressive, it can be all of these things, but 
everybody knows that every country's nationalism is different. Irish nationalism is not coming from a context of trying to conjure a previous position of dominance that is uh, insular, that is trying to get that memory back. It's not like a Brexit reflex, which is why I find it so irritating with people talking about Irish unity and they refer to, refer to Brexit, because it's, it's, not, it's not, obviously, they're two completely different things. So that's not where Irish nationalism is coming from. That's where loads of other nationalisms are coming from. I'm still very, like, I don't like nationalisms or things, you know, in, in general, or these kind of fixed ideologies or whatever. But is there an opportunity to actually progress beyond what, what, where we have come from, you know, for the last hundred years or whatever, and create an expansive, optimistic, non-nihilistic, inclusive, hopeful... Uh, you non-sectarian. Know, non-sectarian. Nash, like country, whatever inclusive, that looks like. Inclusive. Absolutely. Of all the new people because, as well as yeah, the older people. Absolutely. And as well as the people from because North and South because and also, different religions. You know, there, like, like a, a cohort that is rarely asked about this are, are new Irish people and immigrants because there are more immigrants in the island of Ireland than there are unionists. And I'm not saying that it's a competition or a hierarchy or whatever, but we, I, I really feel that we need to start discussing what does a new country actually look like? Because if we keep, uh, and how can we form it, and what parts of our identity are actually expansive and brilliant and beautiful, and how can we harness a pride that doesn't shove anyone out, that doesn't offend anyone, that doesn't revert to uh, uh, a, a violent reflex, and all of this, all of this is, you know, coming at the time of massive political upheaval because culture moves politics and the party of the day, the party that always comes to power anywhere is always a party that responds to or somehow encapsulates accidentally or otherwise the culture of the moment. So it's all being filtered through uh, a political landscape that is completely being uh, in a moment of upheaval as well. Brian, can I ask you, just lastly, and it's been a really interesting conversation, you mentioned earlier on that you, you got rid of the Rebel songs from the senior team. I do remember when you are you're having all that underage success, a lot of the images were of yourself and more particularly Noel O'Reilly on the guitar, banging out tunes. And we've got a lovely photograph there, the late Noel O'Reilly. What, so what sort of stuff was that then, if it wasn't, if it wasn't Rebel tunes? Uh, well, Noel was... Um, <coughs> Noah was like jukebox Judy on his own every night. He could sing anything. But his favourites were Christy Moore, Big Time, um, uh, Bob Dylan, another Christy Hennessy was another he liked the, he liked the Christy. Jimmy McCarthy was another one. But he could go anywhere. I mean, some nights, I'm not joking you, he'd 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 pretend he was Bob Dylan singing the U2 song. Without, and he could do it the other way around. He'd do Bono singing. He was, sorry, I mean, that is, uh, see, Gary Dempsey, Joe Murphy, that, that wouldn't have been too far off from teaching Andy Reid to sing Roy Dawn. And, <laughs> and giving, giving Andy Reid the guitar and, 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 and kind of... That got, into his, it got him into some bother. Uh, with like Trap, yeah, years yeah, later, yeah. As I recall, with Trap, yeah, yeah. No, he didn't know Trap. Here's you, Brian. We've got you banging one out there. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that was the only time ever, I think, I, I sang in a pub. That's actually in Malaysia. And uh, that was the ambassador, the Irish ambassador to Malaysia, who would uh, <laughs> honour us with his presence in Sambo Morphy's pub or somewhere <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was called. <laughs> And uh, I, I don't, actually, the funny thing about that night, we were kind of rather pleased ourselves. We, uh, we'd, we think we'd, we'd won the quarterfinal of the World Cup and we are in the pub and we, we got lovely food and we were being well looked after and the players were sitting around and we allowed them to have a drink and there was a few games and connect forward and so on. And I remember, that's <laughs> true, Thomas Morgan said, can we go back soon? And I said, are you sure? He said, ah, oh, yeah. He said, the lads are tired, want to go to bed. I must have been the history of an Irish team in a pub, in the, you know, being allowed to have a few drinks, it must have been unique. That they <laughs> said to the manager and the coaching staff, can we go? We were quite happy. Noel, Noel was in full flow, as you can see. I was look, looking, so. Anyway, Listen. Noel, the, the range of songs, but they would definitely 
not have been a wolf tone song. All right, for, for various no, reasons, just, by the sound things. No, it, was, it wasn't something we discussed, but we were very, very conscious of the background of some of the players. That, you know, Sean Bourne, the captain won the teams that won the European Championship. London born, didn't, it wouldn't have sat well with him. Yeah. Liam George, black lad with, 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 with um, dreadlocks. His mum was from Fairview. His dad was from St. Lucia. Again, you know, he, 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 Noel would be would have been very subtle yeah. about those things and understanding of. It was good times. I know when we start going through the players one by one, that can that can be a long conversation with Brian. <laughs> so listen, you've both been absolutely amazing. Really appreciate it. Una Malali and Brian Kerr, everybody. Thank you. There you go. Now, I did warn you, it wasn't your typical end-of-year fluff piece, but I hope everyone got something out of that. If you'd like to hear more conversations along these lines, then please do consider signing up to the World Service on secondcaptains.com. It doesn't cost a huge amount, and I think you'll find it value for money. I suppose you can be the judge of that if you want to sign up, because it's mm. only... Uh, we think no, it's great, though. You can sign, yeah, <laughs> we think it's great. You, you can sign up for a month, and then decide it's not value for money, and then cancel after a month. It's that simple. All episodes are free of ads for members. And Second Captain's Murph is part of the ACAST. It's the ACAST Creator Network. Creator Network, yep. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so. That's the one. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The Second Captain's World Service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.